Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. So it's been a full season for the Under Pressure Outdoors crew in the Hasmore Outdoor Products Silent Seat. And let me tell you, they're worth every penny. And here are some reasons why. Number one, you can't beat the comfort level. Number two, they don't hold in moisture like rain or sweat. Number three, they completely fold out of the way when you stand up, giving you a full range of motion in your climber. And number four, they cut down on your setup and breakdown times dramatically. Don't just take our word for it. Use offer code UPO15 and get 15% off your silent seat and many other U.S.-made accessories for your climber today. You can find Hasmore Outdoor Products on Facebook and hasmore.net. That's H-A-Z-M-O-R-E dot net. And in the link in this podcast description. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Oh, get these adjusted better. Briar, yours are... Somebody... I'm good. Your earmuffs are way up. Mine are up, but I'm deaf. Okay, so it's good. <laughs> oh, it's gonna. You're coming through that. loud and clear. You're not. You're not screaming. Yeah. So. Your earmuffs are way higher than anybody else's. That's perfect for me. All right. Be careful, because after a while, you'll start to think, "Man, I'm getting a headache." <laughs> <laughs> way too much range time with no plugs. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. So we usually do. This may come out. Cold open. We just kind of start rambling a little bit, and then eventually we'll start talking about things like what we got coming up. And uh, in fact, we may already be doing a cold open. But we actually yeah. are, yeah, yeah. Cold open. Yeah, it's already for those, been for those of you in podcast land. Yeah. Opening the podcast, right? It's here. already it's already started recording. Yep. Hope y'all ready to eat some crawfish. But I would say, speaking of stuff coming out, man, we got some jam up stuff. We got uh, at this point, we have the Wood April twenty first. Nope. Don't mention those. They're not going in there. Well, April we, we can talk about the wood boxes. It was a great weekend. They're in the water. Tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the wood duck boxes are already in the water at this point. You missed out on that. And it was um, a great event. Yeah. Oh, I have no doubt it's going to be. Uh, April 21st, we have the Ducks Unlimited UPO dinner. Or Ducks Unlimited dinner with UPO. UPO right? table. Our UPO yeah. table. And uh, that's going to be a fun one. We're going to be the rowdy table. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's some rowdy folks on that side of town. We probably will be the rowdy table, though. It's a bottomless cup. Yeah. Okay. That's Easton. Easton's already agreed to drive me there. Well, let me. You know, I learned today that um, man, if you're listening to this and you like Ducks Unlimited stuff, or even if you've never been to one, if you like the ability to possibly walk away with some smoking firearms at a great deal, I think we already have sixteen. Or more donated for the event. Nice. So that's just the guns. That's not the trips. That's not. I know for sure the there's going to be some eco coolers there too. Oh yeah, coolers yeah. and all kinds of merch and, and paintings and I could go for thirty minutes. It's this is going to be, you know, it's out in Sumterville, but man, it this is not the du dinner to miss. This is it is the, the same venue as last year? It is. Oh, man. it's a beautiful venue it is. too. Yep. 
it's going to be awesome. That's Silo Oaks. Yep. But it's going to be off the chain. Yes, absolutely. So we'll have about two to 220 people to max that place out. So it's not going to be absolutely hammered full of five, 600 people. Um, and there will be, you're going to have to work not to go home with something. So, yeah, I think just about us. all of us went home with something last year. I mean, Briar bought his spent way too much money last year <laughs> on that mojo. <clears throat> but, uh, I think pretty much everybody won something Oakley last just, year. Yep. And all of it goes to conservation. Yep. Wetland conservation. And then May 3rd through the 7th, we have the uh, fifth annual Swanee River Fishing Expedition. That's going to be a blast. 68 days. Yeah. And if you're part of the group page, you've already uh, you've been seeing our countdown that's going down. <clears throat> and then uh, May 20th. There should be a drum roll. Yeah. I think, oh, I don't know which one it is. We have one somewhere on here. Uh, but Shh, this is a good spot. Yeah. <laughs> May 20th, we have the, what's it? Uh, crawfish. Mud Bug yeah. Bash. Mud and, Bug Bash and poker, and poker Run. run. And speaking of having donations, we got to give a lot of credit to Sid. Mm-hmm. Sid Thias and a fast duck, he's a man possessed. We got he is 20, well, it's not quite all Sid, but it's a lot of Sid. And uh, Jody Hecht is another one. A um, bunch of other folks have brought stuff in, but we've got something like 23 different trips. fishing, hunting, scalloping wow. trips donated. Like so, And then we've had a number of cash sponsors come in to largely cover our cost of crawfish. We had another dude throw in a giant crawfish wagon that could cook like 250 pounds Yeah, it's of like a huge a uh, like food trailer truck thing. Yeah, and then there's guns. And coolers and goodness knows what else. Yeah, and uh, the twenty-three horse mud walker. What? Yep. yep. And the on-the-fly jack plate of your choice. That's yeah. not. We That's just, and a custom rifle build from Deep Roots. Yeah. yeah. So the rifle build and the mud walker motor, those are things you can buy tickets right to now. Because now. Now. those will probably be long gone by the time the actual boil comes along. Yeah. But I can't stress enough. Again, Jolly Gator through is thrown in their place no cost to us so when we say 100 percent of your crawfish tickets and your mud run tickets and whatever else you buy for raffles and things we say 100 percent is going to 10 can normally what that means is 100 percent after costs we've had generous people already cover our costs you buy a ticket it's going to 10 can and 10 can works with vets and first responders who are working through post-traumatic stress all through outdoor activities. It is one of the most noble causes in Florida. And even 10Can doesn't have anybody collecting a salary. Yeah. So it's 100% going straight to mission. you got to get your tickets and get them yesterday. Yep. And uh, if you really want to see what this is going to, I believe that uh, 100% of this boil goes to their gator hunting initiative. Yep. To get vets out to gator vets and first responders out to gator hunt. So if you follow them on Facebook, Florida you'll can. see. Yep, Florida can. You'll see plenty of posts. They do it every year, Florida, man. I think you can even go to Christian Adventure Network. Yep, and they put up posts every year of the gators that they get to put these guys. They on. kill some nice gators too. Yeah, if you're listening to this, get out there and tell your friends. Tell them the story that 100 percent is going to charity. And not just charity with salaries and things like that, right to mission. 
so it's awesome yep it's gonna be jam up and that's that's it for our events tonight will's out again so i'm your host jordan and then we have ross lamoro and uh then we have jim yes sir and briar how y'all doing so ross we have you in here tonight to talk about the the Seminole Indian Wars or Florida history in general as well. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yeah. Tell Absolutely. us a little bit about you. Well, me, I am an Army veteran. I was an MP, reserves for a few years. Uh, graduated Georgia Military College and University of Georgia. I work for the Tampa Bay History Center uh, for the last fourteen years, where I'm a historical interpreter and also the manager of a off-site historic site that we run in Brooksville uh, called Chinsegut Hill, which is an antebellum plantation home that we give guided tours. And that's how I met uh, Jim right here a few weeks ago. It's a great place. Thank you. A little subjective, but I think it's a cool site. I've been to a lot of them. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great place and a big chunk of Florida history that, like a lot of Florida history we're going to talk about today, just it, it defies explanation as to why more people don't know what on, what went on there. You know, I think it's a huge thing that there's a lot of people and and even like your native Floridians know very little about Florida's actual history. Absolutely. Jim and I were talking and probably the point of tonight me being here even a native-born Floridian has no concept of the history that this state has. And with Florida being so transient, everybody's from everywhere else. I was born in Indiana, but I've lived here 40 years. It doesn't matter where you're from. Florida is considered by many to be the youngest state for whatever reason. The reality is our history predates most of the United States when you look at it. Whether you're looking at the Spanish colonial period, the British, French, there's all this. There is a tremendously rich native history. And today we've kind of lumped everybody under one kind of tribe, the Seminoles. And we'll talk a lot about that, I'm sure. But Florida's history just gets screwed, whether that's in the schools, the textbooks. There's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, you know, I talked about it earlier today as a guy who's a history buff. And a lot of people think that nothing happened here. But a ton, as you just alluded to, a ton did happen here. But I think that part, this is all my personal opinion, I think a big part of the reason it's not taught, and guys, forgive my French, but early Florida history is a shit show. And what I mean by that is you had the French laying claim to large parts of it, the Spanish laying claims to large parts of it, the English coming and going. Um, then, of course, there, there were Indians here that we'll talk a little bit more about, but they got run out. The Seminoles come in. They laid claim. And, just, and then on top of that, you've got this list of really interesting characters that come and go some are literally revolutionaries starting countries in florida that people don't eat never heard of but they were independent nations for short periods of time yeah and he he spoke earlier about florida being like now being a melting pot but even if you look back into florida's history like jim was saying florida's always been a massive melting pot it always has been it's always been transient from the first uh, explorers all the way to today. It has not changed. And we were joking earlier before the cast, Florida man has been around for 500 <laughs> years or more. 
There is no freaking doubt. <clears throat> to me, I, I kind of split history into two categories. There's academic history, and that's your purest textbook, book form of history that you'll learn in schools and universities. And then there's working man's history. And that is what I specialize in. That is the history that everybody should know that doesn't. The stories, the people, things that connect today. Something that happened 500 years ago that still has relevance. We are filled with that history. And to go along with what you're saying, Jim, I think a lot of reason why Florida history isn't well known along the same lines. It was such a, a shit show, as you said from atrocities to uh, crazy individuals and people. Some of it is the academic world shutting down Florida history, meaning they don't want to look back at the negatives. The other part is the transient nature of everybody. Their state history is taught in fourth grade by and large. So everybody that moves down to Florida after fourth grade has New York history. They got Illinois history, Indiana history, whatever. Florida even in fourth grade, gets a year. They're actually teaching maybe three days a week out of a 200-page textbook that they don't even get three-quarters of the way through. So academically, it's time, money, and indifference. Even history teachers are like, eh, our history's not really that great. So where I come in and other museums and other historic programs, it's, how do we take these incredible stories and then make it to where the masses hear it, see it, feel it? That can be done in museums. It can be done in classrooms. It can be done uh, through living history, like reenactments and things. All of those come to play in what I do. And it is kind of my career goal to bring history to everybody. Hallelujah, man. You know, and before we throw teachers under the bus, going back to what do you teach? Because if you're really teaching about Florida history, and this is going to blow a lot of people's minds, you mean the French portion and the Spanish portion dealing with Mobile and Baton Rouge <laughs> and the, the, the entire eastern portion of Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi? Or are we talking about the British history all around, well, for Spanish history all along St. Augustine? Are we talking about the fact that Floridians were loyalists during the the, the Revolutionary War, yeah. and that the <laughs> they, they didn't just sail right to Boston. Yeah. They came and they came across the Atlantic and got healthy in Florida before yeah. they went up and fought what we think of as traditional Revolutionary War. What part of it? Whose version of because all this is going on at the same time too? Yeah. Oh, and then we got the Seminoles, sure. right? Like, <laughs> well, there's the old saying: "History's written by the winners." Yeah. Okay, and that's where part of the problem comes in too, because so many things happen in Florida. There's no winner. <laughs> The Seminole Wars, great example of that that we'll get into. The The whole early part of the 19th century is nothing but war and conflict with the Seminoles. But prior to all that, it's nothing but war and conflict between the Spanish, the French, the British. Uh, seven flags have flown over Florida at any one point. At least. At least. And those are just the official ones. So... That's, so where do we where do we start? I was going to say it, you know, it, if we're talking somewhat about the uh the Seminoles or the Seminole Wars, uh start with the 
the history of, you know, uh, the Seminole tribe itself. Sure. The Seminoles are one of those groups that is more misunderstood than I think any indigenous group in the South. Um, they are not all blood related. They come from a variety of different tribes and backgrounds. And, and to kind of oversimplify it, uh, the majority come from the Cherokee, the Carolinas, the upper and lower creeks of Alabama and Georgia, Miccosukee, uh, Muskogee. There are black Seminoles, those who are escaping chattel slavery in the South who found a home. There were Spanish Seminoles that were part of this, that were left over from the colonial days. So not to call them a melting pot, but they're, they were very cosmopolitan for the time. They were very accepting of different things. But what brought them together was ideology. Most of the native tribes we think of were hunters, fishermen, nomadic, moving on to the next hunting ground, living off the, off the land and moving on. And all the Seminoles come from that background as well. But there is a movement in the late 1700s, starting about 1760s, 1750s or so, where they were breaking away from those traditional cultures. They were learning scientific farming. They were building towns and settlements and living in cabins and not wigwams or teepees. And basically, they are breaking away and finding cultural bonds with other people. And as they are kind of being chased out of the regular uh, south and east of the United States, the original 13 colonies, and as white settlers are pushing down south and west, they began to move down into what becomes South Georgia and Alabama uh, and into Florida. Historians today have broken down three different wars that the U.S. government fought with them. Um, 1817 to 19. 1835 to 42 and uh, 1856 to 58. The reality is the Seminoles consider it one long war. To them, the conflict never ended. So the whole first half of the 19th century is conflict with not just the U.S. government, but many times themselves. And so the very name Seminole is argued. Some, uh, some historians believe it comes from a Spanish word, Cimarrone, which means to run away or break away. And, and that's a pretty good uh, assessment, I guess, because they are breaking away from the traditional culture. Uh, but what complicates things is uh, we have the uh, black slaves leaving the South, uh, escaping uh, chattel slavery, finding a home amongst the Seminoles, uh, and it wasn't quite that easy. The Seminoles, many parts of that culture, were slaveholders themselves. The difference is it was easier to earn your freedom uh, by assimilating the culture, being productive in the communities, and so blacks then begin to become accepted within the tribe, uh, but not fully. They are considered Seminoles, they interact with the community, but they have their own little cliques, their own towns and communities within the tribe, uh, but by and large are accepted within their culture. Uh, the difficulties begin as more white settlers in the expansion are wanting to come south into this area. Now we begin kind of quickly, the first war was a very short one, 1816, uh, 1817, 1818. 
Andrew Jackson's a big player in this. Now, General Jackson, hero of New Orleans, War of 1812, he is brought back into service by the president to basically push the Creeks out of Alabama and Georgia and push them into Florida. Now, at this time, Florida was Spanish territory. So he's kind of breaking a couple international laws by crossing into Spanish territory, but he didn't care. They fight a little battle around the siege of Pensacola, but he becomes a national hero again by uh, completing the goal of pushing these natives out. And there's a pretty steady peace for a few years. They come into central Florida. And kind of the epicenter at this time is, well, kind of, you know, from Gainesville down to about Brooksville, the whole central part of Florida, around lakes and rivers with Lacoochee River, all the big lakes. And there's a pretty uneasy peace. Uh, they're forming big communities. Uh, in fact, the, the largest known village is was called Chocachatty, which is uh, where Brooksville is today. And it's estimated at one point they had 2,000 Seminoles living in this wow. town. That's a pretty large settlement. Yeah. Uh, and that existed from 1760 to about 1825, 1830. Now, so they're coming down a lot earlier than most people give them credit for. And to put that in perspective, this is... This is seven, late early 1800s. So when people say, oh, 2,000 doesn't sound like a lot. There weren't very many 2,000 citizen cities anywhere in the United States. No. <laughs> right? yeah. New York, Boston, Philadelphia, outside of that, Charleston maybe, and, nope. and Savannah. But certainly not in the southeast and definitely not in Florida. Chocachatty was, was the third or place. fourth largest town in Florida if you consider that St. Augustine and Pensacola were the two big towns. Yeah. Under Spanish territory, Florida was east and west Florida. St. Augustine being the capital of the east, Pensacola in the west. And most people lived in the upper panhandle part of Florida. Nobody was coming down and living on the beaches like we do today. If they did come down, they're in the interior and generally raising cattle and farming because of the rich land there. Honestly, Today's life on the beach would not happen without Mr. Carrier's famous invention, the air conditioner. And the Skeeter's yeah. It wasn't until the 20s people were wanting to <clears throat> even use the coastline. You couldn't give away beachfront until then. But all that said, the, the Seminoles come down here. They are looking at farming. And they are heavily involved in cattle ranching. They're growing crops, corn particularly. And that's what people forget. Uh, Florida, as a cattle ranching state, has always been upper tier. Texas gets all the credit. Florida's the first of the cattle ranchers. They're getting the first Spanish cattle back in the 1500s. The first cattle industry starts here in Florida. Seminoles were no different. They are picking up these old scrub cows, rounding them up, and creating pretty large uh, holdings. This becomes kind of tense with these American settlers coming down. They're wanting to come down and raise cattle as well. So between the agricultural output and then the cultural differences, tensions reach again in the 1820s and 30s. So about 1825, Congress enacts legislation that calls for the removal of natives, all natives, east of the Mississippi River. And this is done through a series of treaties by tribe. 
and this is all of them from the northeast the atlantic side down into florida pretty much a wide sweep of all natives but it was to be done by trading land out west and this is where the reservations out in oklahoma begin initially arkansas and oklahoma were going to be indian territory what we forget in a lot of this is many of these native leaders were actually sent out west to look at the land and said, okay, this is good or this isn't good. Uh, but the bulk of them signed off on it. Where it becomes really murky is the Seminoles. They are given the same opportunities. Their leadership is allowed to go out west to Arkansas and look at this land. Problem was the government then didn't understand the cultural differences amongst all the Seminoles. They lump them all into one group the Seminoles. And they're not. They're Miccosukee, Muscogee, Creek, Cherokee. They speak different languages. They have different culture. And so not all of the leadership was a part of this process. Problem number two, those initial treaties in 1825, when signed off, gave them 20 years to settle their affairs in Florida prior to movement. The big thing is they were so entrenched in cattle ranching and farming that that was part of their deal. Hey, we can't just up and leave what we have. It shows how firmly rooted they were here in Florida. So the government initially gives them 20 years to settle their affairs. Part of this process was also paying off annual stipends. They're getting paid money from the federal government. They were given arms and ammunition to hunt and protect themselves. Well, the big problem comes about 1835. The government steps in. Like four years later, something like that. Uh, nine years later. Nine years later. Yeah, they come in and say, oh, well, you need to leave now. <laughs> All right, that's like today. Somebody knocking on your door. Hey, we're here from the government. You need to leave. Yeah. They give them 20, you get halfway through it, yeah. and they're like, eh. Not even halfway through, and you got to go. So, yeah. of course, there's going to be some, some tension, shall we say. So the government fully recognizing not if but when war is going to start they begin to send troops down to florida they begin to build a series of forts throughout the state uh, there had already been two big ones fort brook in what is now tampa and fort king in present-day ocala and they build roads between these forts and in this case the fort king military road which today is roughly us 301 running north and south these natives begin to see all this buildup and they're being told you need to come to Fort Brook. Uh, we need to put you on a roster and get you out west. And some of them are very willing and, and come in and others uh, not so much. And it's one time where all these different cliques get together. And all these different groups with different kind of different ways of seeing things and even language have one common goal. Okay, we have to resist this move. Also considering that about half of them hadn't even been part of the process to begin with. So is this, one, is this one, this is about the time that Osceola and Alligator and Chief Jumper and all those guys were under prominence, right? This they said, is yeah. absolutely they said, true. no bueno. Wasn't, wasn't yep. it at one point, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Fort King like, uh, it was a, a place that the, the Indians were happy with. Yes, yeah. Actually, Brooke and, and King were both part of the Indian Agency, as it yeah. was called. They would come in to trade. It's where they received their stipends mm -hmm. and payments and were initially on pretty good terms with the government because they're getting their payouts, they're getting their information. Uh, but as the tensions begin to build, the leadership gets together and some others that aren't leaders but are prominent 
and they begin talking and say, hey, this is not in our best interest. This is where the legend of Osceola comes to play. Now, today, everybody's heard of Osceola. You've got FSU football and, you know, this great Chief Osceola. The reality is Osceola is not a chief, he, but he is a bright warrior on the rise. Uh, by heredity, he can't become a chief. He was mixed, uh, mixed race. His father was Scottish. His mother was Creek. Uh, but that said, he had quite a following. The young warriors tended to congregate around him and a, a man named Kawakachi, uh, called Wildcat by the, by the whites. Uh, they become kind of the head of this movement to resist and fight. While some of the older leadership, uh, like Micanope, one of the older chiefs, are all about, no, nope, let's, uh, let's assimilate, let's move, you know, we, we don't need the tensions. By and large, the younger warriors and leaders kind of went out, and you get Alligator and Jumper and others that, that uh, are, by all accounts, brilliant military leaders. To this day, some of the battles and tactics of the Seminole War are studied by our own military still. Uh, there's three or four groups of field grade officers that come to Dade Battlefield every year to study that. As I say, technology is the only real difference in war. The, the tactics are still very similar, ambushes and, and all. But December 1835, the tensions are at a height. There is, uh, like I said, not if, but when battle's going to start, the government begins to move troops around to bolster the garrisons. Um, December 1835, a column of soldiers from Fort Broken Tampa is tasked to go up to Fort King to relieve that garrison. So three companies of soldiers, 108 men, led by Major Francis Dade, uh, are given the task to march up from Tampa to Ocala. Uh, it takes about 9, 10 days, give or take, on a regular march up there. But for two weeks, the Seminoles had tracked their entire progress, knew exactly where they wanted to hit them, and a perfect ambush was triggered December 28th, and all but three of the 108 were killed. And today, that's uh, you can go see the battlefield at Dade Battlefield Historic State Park. The land is very much like it was then. But this battle is the trigger to the bigger war that ends up going on about seven years. At the same exact time, Osceola with several of the younger warriors were at Fort King killing the Indian agent, General Wiley Thompson, and some civilians there. This was a very well-planned two-pronged attack, same time, same day. This makes immediate national news. This is on the front page of every newspaper. There is an immediate call for war. So December 28, 1835, pivotal day. These two actions occur. The entire nation gets behind war. The Army, Navy, Marine Corps, volunteers from seven different states, their militias prepare to come down to Florida. And there is immediate movement into the South. This is the biggest thing to hit American.
As we move through life, it's inevitable that we're going to find ourselves needing trusted advice from legal counsel, from business transactions to real estate, lawsuits to contract matters. We all need advice and assistance from time to time. Attorney Roman Hammes multi-state law practice focuses on litigation, business law, and real estate. Roman helps individuals and business owners find solutions to their legal problems. If push comes to shove, Rome is an experienced litigator with extensive trial experience and the ability to take it all the way. He's been named Super Lawyer every year from 2016 to present, a distinction given to only 5% of practicing lawyers. Most importantly, Roman is an avid hunter, angler, conservationist, and proud supporter of the UPO Nation. When you need dependable legal counsel, call Roman, 407 480-6050 or 843-324-1727 or email roman at romanvhamas.com that's r-o-m-a-n at r-o-m-a-n v-h-a-m-m-e-s dot com offices florida and South Carolina. History since the revolution. This is like 30,000 men yeah. that they moved down to Florida. Yeah. You, go, at, the, at the biggest, how many Seminole warriors ever fought at once? Tops. At one time, maybe three to 500. Yeah. So in a Dade's battle, it's estimated there's 280. Uh, later on, in 1837, the Battle of Okeechobee, they say there might be 500 Seminoles. But the entire Army, Navy, Marine Corps comes down here. I may be stealing some of your thunder, but yeah. they never got a... They never surrendered. No. <laughs> there was never a treaty. <laughs> we, will, we will definitely get to that, but no. There, 300 there dudes. <laughs> this is not. now. That's the American 300 right there. Yeah, yeah. You think about I mean, it. Yeah, these are these were not. Forgive me, what you might think of stereotypical now, domicile roadside like 1960s selling trinket Indians. These guys will split your skull. <laughs> you know? These are Scalp, scalping you yeah, when they're they, down with you. Hard yeah. men. These are guys from cradle to grave. Yeah. Are warriors. This, the the Dade battle particularly, but all these actions would be in every textbook today. Every kid would know Major Dade's name. Everybody would know about all of the Seminoles and everything that went on. But news back then traveled a little slower. You know, today we get news almost before it happens. We can pick up our phone and get it. Back then it's a little slower. It took several weeks for the Army to even find out what had happened to Dade's men when they didn't reach Fort King. But once it made the papers, it was all over. But three months later, a little thing out west in Texas called the Alamo happens. And it really overshadowed things. And that kind of took away some of the collective national psyche. It did not slow down the war. This war lasts until 1842, almost seven years. And when we talk about the thousands of troops that come down here, the whole U.S. Army was only about 25,000 people as a whole at this time. About 20,000 of them rotate at one point in and out. All the guys. And Navy, Marine Corps involved, the militias. Uh, 
in the end, there's no real winner or loser. The government just withdraws troops. They're tired of fighting. They have pushed most of everything down south to the Everglades. And in the end, when they withdraw, they just allow whoever is left to remain. And it's estimated there were about 2,000 Seminoles left down the Everglades. That's pretty impressive to realize that it's estimated there were 5,000 Seminoles prior to the war. So that's some attrition. And although there's no winner or loser, technically, Seminole were unconquered. They were allowed to remain, those who were left. Uh, those that didn't die were sent out west to Arkansas, Oklahoma, on reservation land there, while the rest existed down here. Now, at this time, you have just fought a almost seven-year war, and the government's trying to figure out what do we do with all this land that we now have available here. There's all this beautiful land in, in the interior. So they passed some more legislation this time called the Armed Occupation Act. So this was a homestead act to entice people to come down to Florida. Now imagine, if you will, trying to talk people into coming down to where they had just fought a war for seven <laughs> years, and there are still people <clears throat> remaining. There are still Seminoles. There is still a threat. So people are not flocking initially down to Florida. It takes this legislation to make it happen. Basically, free land. The big deal was this. You could come down and claim an available piece of land. And as long as you improved the land, built a home on it, and agreed to be armed to protect the territory. Basically, keeping the government from having to come down again, you're joining the militia. But if you do all those things for five years, you get 160 acres of land. That's you a know, sizable chunk. But I'm still not surprised that people chunk. didn't really flock down here because you think about the people that had been to Florida, a lot of military guys went home with stories of, well, 150 guys went down in a regiment, forgive the term, but 50 of them died by diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? another, another, another 30 of them died from, you know, some sort of mosquito borne illness. I was going to say the mosquitoes and, alone would. Yeah. Goodness. 10 more got their head split. And a couple of us came home. I don't care what they're giving me. I'm not going back. Yeah. <laughs> the vast majority of deaths for the military were disease. Yeah. 90%. Only about 10% in battle. And that's detracting. And that's keeping people away, just knowing that. You know, yeah, mosquitoes, the heat. But 160 acres becomes the equalizer. People now are like, okay, I can make something out of that they began to flock down. And so many came in a two-year period that Florida went from being a territory in 1842 to a state in 1845. They got enough people to move down here. So this is a big deal. But where, where were these people coming? They weren't sliding on down to Okeechobee, right? I assume most of them were settling in the panhandle, the northern, north of Ocala, Gainesville. Yeah, they're coming from, from basically Gainesville down uh, to... Actually, yeah. Gainesville, right? General Gaines is one of the yeah. guys who's down here. Beat them up. Absolutely. Yeah. But Gain, from Gainesville down to just below Tampa, let's say, is the bulk of these initial folks. So right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're in the epicenter still. Just like where, when the war started, this becomes the center for the homesteading. Where it's on. high and dry. Yeah. Exactly. The yeah. interior is the most popular place. Folks are coming down to farm. 
they're looking for open land. They're looking for a place they can put cattle. Uh, again, the beaches are, are just not looked at at all. The coastline's ignored. So these folks that are coming down, they are finding this free land. It's great. And what Seminoles are left are on basically reservation land south of Lake Okeechobee at this point. Now, a third war occurs in 1856 and 57 that it is derived from um, basically the army comes down in the Everglades and they begin surveying for roads. Their expansion's coming. They know this. So they're going through Seminole territory pretty roughshod. They got surveyors and crews coming down. And there is a chief... Uh, Billy Bowlegs was his American nickname, who had beautiful land down there. He had some prized plants, and, and kind of the joke is the war started by getting his bananas trampled. But what had happened is these surveying crew just went roughshod through his territory without asking. He takes offense to this, so he begins to send war parties north, and they get all the way up to past Tampa, Pasco County, Citrus County, Hernando, and all points east and west. And for another year and a half, kind of a third war breaks out. Much smaller scale. Uh, it doesn't stop expansion. People are still coming down. Uh, but it kind of gets the military scared. They begin sending troops down again, some more militia. But it's quelled pretty quickly because there are a lot less Seminoles. There aren't big, large-scale battles. They're small war parties. They're going and burning down ranches and farms and, and, and some general uh, smaller scale things are happening. At this point, the government's got a, a lid on everything. There's, there's no more wars with the natives down here, but there's uh, you know financial difficulties, tensions, the Civil War breaks out, and that uh, changes a few things. Uh, but the Seminoles, by and large, continue to exist south of Okeechobee and in the Everglades on reservation land. What they begin to do, though, over the next 70, 80 years, is they increase their ranch holdings and cattle ranching, and they become the number one cattle ranching entity in the state, of a state full of incredible cattle ranching. The big pioneering families, the Likes, the Lightsies, uh, all these families uh, are smaller operations when you consider the Seminoles all work as one entity. So they are making a ton of money in ranching and farming, and they begin kind of pooling that together, trying to improve uh, some of the reservations. And as a whole, they are using business to bring them out. Uh, they had some rough few years. It's not to say they were wealthy. Uh, by any means over these decades. Uh, sometimes they had to scrape out an existence by having tourists come visit the reservations and sell trinkets to, to them. You have uh, Silver Springs in Ocala that's known. They have a Seminole village there. and uh, They had to scrape out an existence for a few years, but through ranching, they begin to build a nest egg. Then there's a movement in the 1950s. All these native tribes that have been sent out west and... Uh, they began to go to court over sovereignty. There's a lot of contentions with the American government. They want to form their own separate sovereignty. 
And one by one, tribes out in Oklahoma begin to win their sovereignty, basically. They're still American citizens, but they have more tribal rights within their reservations. And this is when the Seminole Tribe of Florida Incorporated begins. It becomes a business as well as the umbrella organization for Florida Seminoles. With that, with their little sovereignty, they have less federal tax issues. So they try out gaming, bingo, and things like that. Uh, Tax-free cigarette sales. They begin building a little nest egg up with that. Then they test the waters. They go up from bingo to slots. That goes to court. But then they win that. Then it goes to full-blown casinos. And when you couple that income with the tax-free sales and the continued cattle ranching, they sneak up on the whole world and buy the entire Hard Rock Hotel and, and casino chain worldwide. Now, wow, I'm, it's not just the one in Tampa. No, they are worldwide. The whole gig is Seminole That is worldwide. Seminole Tribe. Wow. Man, that's, <clears> now, no big, that's a big learn. That's a huge one. Now, that said, they did not just come out of nowhere and become world business leaders. They had to scrape an existence for decades down the glades. It was not an easy life. But what they did is through business and education, raise themselves up to where they're at. Now, that is not to say the entire uh, Seminole tribe is this or that. They are, like anyone else, a mix of people. There's upper class, low class, middle class. They have some great opportunities that they've created for themselves. But today there are five different reservations in Florida where they can live. That's kind of... Um, uh, group-based, like the, the Miccosukees have a reservation, uh, but Brighton, Hollywood, Big Cypress, uh, even Tampa has a reservation. And we know you've learned a lot of this, because why don't you tell us about one of your, who, who one of your closest friends is? The uh, the gentleman uh, who is the curator? curator. Mm. So I have, through, through living history, through like the reenactments and stuff I've been involved in, there are several... Uh, natives that I've got to be friends with. Uh, one of them in particular, though, uh, has worked for years with the tribe. Uh, he got, uh, uh, by virtue of his uh, tribal membership, has afforded himself educational opportunities, uh, but he's worked with their museum. He does living history programs, but uh, uh, he's given me a lot of insights that you're not going to find in books or, or online uh, about history and culture and today's life. What's kind of interesting, though, about Seminoles, as much as, for, as he and I are friends and, and discuss a lot of things, spiritually and culturally, there are things they keep amongst themselves only. That's, uh, That's fantastic. And, and it is. It's awesome. Uh, religious or spiritual based. And he says there are stories and legends within the tribe that they're going to keep that way, which is absolutely awesome. But the insights he's given me, though, about... Uh, uh, I call it perseverance, you know, taking the, getting a pretty raw deal after a couple wars and, and growing, using laws to their advantage, uh, pulling themselves up. To me, it's, it's awesome that here we are 170 years later, there are still people that speak the language, 
follow the culture, um, and still conduct modern business, you know, receive a great liberal arts education, have, you know, can come and go at will in all of these societies. Uh, but they themselves as a tribe, uh, up until recently, were kind of ignorant of some of their own history. Like many other native tribes, they've kind of swayed away from the base culture, and they're coming back to that. There's oh, a, a lot of that. a lot of people are just ignorant history in general. Totally. And here we totally. are. We're, we're all we are not Seminole, you know, uh, Indians or, or 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 descendants. We really probably should work. It'd be a great thing to have in the future. I'd love to have somebody from the tribe actually come in and give us a, a firsthand. You know, you've done a great job with the Seminole Indian Wars in Florida history, but as far as really getting into, well, I don't know, for lack of a better term, what is it to be a Seminole Indian? And and, and having gone through that, and I know that different people feel differently about history and how it impacts them. Um, I try not to make too many excuses or, or get too wrapped up in the, in the self-righteousness of things because hum, human beings, all human beings, um, you go back and have a history and there are one party wars against the other, whether it's the Celts or the Huns or the Visigoths, or you come over here and different Indian tribes exterminated each other. In fact, in, we kind of skipped over this in Florida's history, but there were a number of different Indian tribes that were in Florida that prior to the Seminoles arriving that were largely corrupted or, or I should say captured by both Europeans and the Yamasi Indians and then sold into slavery. And, and that's what part of what actually allowed the Seminoles to come down here is the previous indigenous cultures were kind of wiped out and, and, and not, yeah. not by Europeans or right. we're not entirely yeah. by Europeans. So there's, there, it really gets into there. But um, I think we've done it. You've done a fantastic job of really covering just touching on the history. And that's only one brief chapter of, what in the world happened? You had these folks down here, and, and I'm rambling now a little bit, but talking about trying to really put into perspective what the United States was like, because you referenced the Alamo. And anybody that knows anything about Texas history, if you go to San Antonio today, it's a huge city. But when the Alamo happened, it was out in the middle of nowhere, and outposts like Goliad and places like that in Texas were tiny. So you had Florida was every bit as much frontier as Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, what's Nebraska, the Lakota, Dakotas. And, and you had people that had lived here for thousands of years, or in this case, moved to Florida, but still had thousands of years of history, that I'm sure that to some, to some degree probably couldn't fathom what they were up against, like how many what the United States was and that it was a relatively cohesive unit and that's what they were fighting. And the idea that, that it wasn't going to end, that they were just going to keep on expanding. How do you imagine that in one lifetime? And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just like I said, it's, it's, it's part of human history. Some cultures, there's, there's not a lot of room left either. Right. I understand all that. But then what I do find very, very admirable, especially about the Seminoles is, um, call it what you want. They didn't surrender. That's it, right? They're, they endured yeah. as as a nation and still are a nation. They still call themselves the unconquered. You go I, to USF or go are. to go to FSU, and right on their statue is one word: unconquered. 
So as a, as a UCF football fan, UCF owns the series against Alabama. <laughs> you can say what you want, but Alabama has never beaten beaten UCF. But yeah. UCF is one and zero. Yeah. <laughs> so same thing, man. <laughs> Call it by the scoreboard. <laughs> you never beat Seminoles. Yeah. We coulda. You didn't. Yeah. It, it is absolutely <laughs> impossible to talk about this culture all in, in one short podcast, and it's impossible as a white historian for me to come in and pretend to even know everything culturally. This is a brief overview, and like you said, it may be great to get one of these guys in, get my buddy in I'd here to talk to. because yeah, absolutely. they only they can tell their story. Yeah, and it's an incredible story. And, and not to take away from the first settlers that come down here during this time, because uh, they had to brave things, too, to come down here. In fact, Florida, I believe, was, uh, they did not, see, they, they called it uh, 1888 is when they finally declared Florida not frontier. That was when the last of the armed occupation land was given out. And so there were still states out west that were not frontier before Florida lost their frontier status. So that says something, too, that <laughs> yeah. they yeah. were not flocking down here. It, it brings a lot to uh, also, like, to what it took to fight those wars. Because oh, of, absolutely. Because if you've ever experienced the heart of Florida itself, it is, it's rough. To, Just, to simplify it, these were the Vietnam of the 1800s. You yeah. were fighting an indigenous people in land of their choosing, utilizing guerrilla tactics against a supposedly superior army, U.S. Army. And it ended about the same way, where the army got spanked just about every chance they got. Yeah. The Seminoles yeah. were able to choose the land, choose the tactics, and there were not these large-scale battles. Same thing happened in Vietnam. There, you know, Of course, there were some bigger ones, some big sieges and things, but by and large, those were small guerrilla-type activities. Same thing in Vietnam. And it's an oversimplification, but it's the best analogy that I can think of between the two. This was yeah. not a walk in the park for any side. Now, and I, I read some, too. You say it was like guerrilla style, and it. it's true because I read some, too. I can't remember what the name of the battle was. It was one of the last battles um, where the Indians had essentially kind of lured them in, but they pretty much lured them into like a cypress head. And they came in with horses and cannons and all kinds of crap. And they ended up having to abandon all of that. And the Indians knew that they were going to have to abandon all that. They, and they absolutely just, picked the land of their choosing, yeah. funneled them in. Um, there, several battles were like that. The biggest one was the Battle of Okeechobee in 1837. They yeah. absolutely suckered them all into one area in in high elephant grass that they could barely walk in right into the swamp. And then all of a sudden they realized the horses are stuck. They can't move the artillery. They were brilliant when yeah. it came to that. And, and how do you fight that? Because our leadership at the time were West Point trained engineers. People forget that West Point was not, it was the primary military academy, but it was not meant to design infantry fighting leaders. It was yeah. to train engineers for the army. Yeah, I was going to say, and you think you're bringing people down from all these other, like, northern states, and they get down here, and they're like, what on earth is this? When you read journals and diaries from some of these junior officers that came down, now here's the crazy thing. Many of them went on to be senior leaders in the American Civil War, but uh, Sherman, Joseph E. Johnston, 
lots of big names that we think of. Stonewall Jackson got their start in Florida during the Second and Third Seminole Wars. And to a man, all of them, when you read their writings, are like, one, I don't understand why we're down here. Two, we can't even find the Seminole when we're looking for them. And three, when we do fight them, we shoot and they run. How, how do you fight a war like that? These are guys that were trained in shoulder-to-shoulder Napoleonic tactics, and they come down to Florida, and, and it's useless. That's kind of funny. Look how a lot of the Confederates fought the Confederate War. There was a fair amount of that. you know. There was. That was but, the mentality. But the, the cavalry tactics, all hit and run, all guerrilla mm-hmm. tactics, and they, they put hurting on. Absolutely. They get undersupplied, undermanned, and they fought pretty yep. dang hard. When you look at the Confederate leadership and how they were winning the first battles for the first couple of years of the Civil War, that's because many of their senior leaders had fought down here in Florida and later in Mexico. Yeah, and Lee, Lee's last outpost before he came back and fought was out in Texas fighting um, That's right. That's, Comanches and, and, yep. and you know, things like that. So they, it was interesting. Hey, we kind of, I'd like to, this is all kind of related a little bit. And, and in our stumbling through different parts of Florida history, and I mentioned this fellow to you earlier, can you talk a little bit about William Augustus Bowles? <laughs> and, and Billy and, Bowlegs. No, nope, no, no, different, no, 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 different cat. Before yeah. that, and the different uh, cat. The free state of Muskogee. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, so William Bowles, William Augustus Bowles. Interesting guy. So he comes down here during the days of the Spanish colonial times. And the British are now interested in North Florida. Uh, 1750s and 60s, England becomes very enamored with St. Augustine and the Upper Panhandle. And there's some conflict between the Spanish and the British. And this guy's a businessman. He's... uh, He's looking out for number one. He, he was a loyalist, and, too. And, he and was it, not a revolutionary. I was going to say, and, and this time he was a British loyalist. There is no doubt. Uh, even in the days where colonial America has taken over uh, parts of Florida, it's still Spanish territory, but by and large, Florida as a whole was British loyalist. And he is very much a British loyalist. He gets what he feels is the shaft as a leader, businessman, he's trying to get more lands. Uh, he's playing both sides. He's playing the Spanish and the British to, to get land. And because of the conflicts between Spain and England, he's kind of left in the wind, hanging. And so he's arrested by both sides at one point, but even by <laughs> his own British. Yeah. He, in effect, becomes a privateer, what we know as a pirate. He begins raiding British, British ships. Uh, he is eventually captured, uh, imprisoned. I can't remember if he was killed. I think he was. No, uh, so he, I know. Uh, he, he, oh, he escaped. Well, so, the, the Span- so the, he wore his welcome out yeah. with the British because yep. they kind of betrayed him. And then the Sp- Spanish capture him. Yeah. And, then, and they send him to Europe and he escapes and comes back. They, well, hold on. <laughs> so, they sent him to Spain. Mm-hmm. And he was. Such a pain in the ass in Spain. They sent him to the Philippines. Oh, that's right. So we're talking. Yeah. We're talking late seventeen hundreds Philippines. <laughs> uh, the, like the Sp- it's Spanish technically, but yeah. it's like where can we drop this? It's guy? the armpit of the world. Yeah, and they yeah. they put him in prison in the Philippines, and he escapes, and becomes a pirate, 
and comes back back again. <laughs> so and he and said, he, and he "How has, you like me now?" Yeah. And what he, he was does, a straight menace to society. So yeah. Yeah. This man exactly. right here, and yes. he then to kind of usurp power, declares himself the head of a sovereign nation, the uh, state of Muskogee. And it's loosely based on natives of the time. And he, he uh, uh, consolidates some of the natives in the panhandle and, and brings them into the fold. But he, he commands at one point about 500 native warriors. And although there's no like real big battles or skirmishes, the threat was there and everyone was scared. Well, his, his grand design was indeed to try to unite all the folks that eventually you could become Seminoles, all the Creeks yeah. and, the, and the Cherokees and things, and try to unite them into a cohesive, a genuine cohesive nation that would then push back against European expansion. He obviously didn't pull it off, right? But it he, and it's it's just another those guys that nobody learns about in history, but just from Maryland fights as a loyalist, eventually winds up down here living in and amongst the Indians, starts playing the land game. Eventually, and both, he's trying to use the the different countries, but they're very, very much trying to use him as a thorn in the side of the other countries. Absolutely. And then eventually they both get sick of him. The Spanish finally, th- you know, just, you wind up in jail in the Philippines, out of Florida. Yeah, <laughs> and, so, then, and they were so gangster, you got yeah. out. You're like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to go back. And captured the, ships and yeah. came back. The very first Florida man right there. Yeah, that's... There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you may be tough, but you ain't that tough. Yeah. <laughs> he was way ahead of his time. Yeah. If, if you think about this, if he had been around in the 1820s or 30s, what could have happened? Oh. It would have been something. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's crazy, too, to talk about when you talk about uh, how much the Seminole were involved in cattle. Or Florida yeah. as a cattle state itself, because there's like nowadays people are like, oh, you live in Florida, right? And and you talk about the the beach it wasn't even a thing back then. People no. are like, oh, you're, you're at the you, you you live on the beach. You're like, no, no. Oh, or Disney. You, you live by Disneyland. You're like, yeah. no. And you're like, listen. At one point, Florida was the the biggest cattle state in the United States. We still run number two or number three every yeah. year, back and forth. We, were. we forget that. Yeah. But all I tell everybody is. Take a trip across, say, State Road 60 or uh, 64. Go across the state in the dead center. Yeah. And then all you're going to find for four hours is flat cattle land yep. everywhere. Yeah. Get Either up that or pine food. trees. Yeah. Lots of that. It's amazing how much dairy's down there, too. You don't think we always know oh, about yeah. the beef. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot. Yeah. She yeah. Good Christmas. We should probably try to get like Matt Pierce or somebody in the past president of the Florida Cattle Association, too. He's. He's actually doing a bunch of work right now on. Uh, we're doing the wood duck boxes, and then down by Okeechobee, that saw that they got a program where they're putting in uh, the um, modeled, yeah, modeled nesting. And I'd I'd love to reach out to him and say, hey, you know, join forces a little bit, raise a few bucks, and see if we can increase that population. That'd be a noble absolutely, effort. absolutely, yeah, yeah, man. Florida history, it's uh, and that's just we barely scratched. I just scratched gave you about surface. I just gave you about forty years of history, and that's it. Yeah. yeah, and about yeah. and about, I think that history came out in about forty five minutes. So that's hey, hey. A, a year a minute. The cow cavalry. Yeah. That was the other thing that. Oh yeah. One one of my favorite books is the Land Remembered. I don't know there how you go. historically accurate it is, but it goes 
fairly in line with all of that. There's a reason why that book is used as a textbook today in fourth grade. It is yeah. very, even though it's a novel, Patrick Smith wrote that as a history book of three generations of Floridians. And it goes back to that time, that homesteading time in the Armed Occupation Act. That's when Tobias, the, the patriarch, starts his family down here. Land Remembered the number one Florida history book for a reason. Um, if you really read into history, you can tell exactly what families he's talking about. The likes are featured in there, the lightsies, all these pioneering families. And it's, I, I give that about a 90% accuracy, which is incredible for a novel. He purposely wrote it as a novel so he didn't offend some of the pioneer families that were still around. Yeah. And that's why. And he, he was also a conservationist in his own way, talking and trying very to say so. I just yeah. read his book, um, uh, Forever Island, which also talks, it has its main characters are actually around some Seminole Indians. Um, but really, it is, it is talking, it, it focuses on, I don't want to give the whole book away, but I don't know how many people are going to read it. It focuses on the Big Cypress area at a period of time before a lot of our larger conservation movements were in place and, and development was just running unchecked and, and really what was happening and what it was like before there was development and then what it was happening. But he, due to efforts like him and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and some of these others are probably the only reason that we have places like Big Cypress, the Florida Path or Refuge. Otherwise, by now, man, they'd all look like the other side of the state. Absolutely, because this yeah. was all at the time you had Baron Collier down there in the south southwest part of the state just buying up every tract of land that he could. And that's why Fort Myers, Naples, that whole area got sprawling. But there's a handful of individuals, and he being one of them, in the 60s and 70s that kind of stopped that unchecked growth. And also the Seminole Tribe. Yeah. By having reservation land, that gets protected and they are very much uh, very spiritually connected to their land, so it's not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, as much as we've talked about these wars, and we kind of talked about it pre-podcast, there's actually a lot of cities in Florida whose names come from Seminole or the forts that were built during these wars. There, are, there were over 100 forts built by the Army alone. So Fort Myers, Fort Pierce, all those fort names, Lauderdale, all come about during these, these war periods. But then look at all the other towns with Seminole. Yeah, you have like Micanopy. Micanopy, Okahumpka, yeah. Okeechobee. All of these are native names. Yalaha. Yalaha. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I, and, and it's funny because it's a lot of these did not have an alphabet. They were all phonetic. So... Who knows how they spelled it or actually said it, but pronounce it, yeah, and you know how they actually pronounced it, but it's phonetic. So we're getting as close as we were 170 years ago to what some redneck from Georgia comes down and hears this name. And well, yeah, where hmm. you live, Altoona, yeah, <laughs> Umatilla, yeah, so, with Lacucci is one of my French. favorite ones. There. Yeah. yeah, you know, you find it spelled in the French. O I T H at first, then you see it W I. You know, so who knows how? But you kind of like a hatchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> all of these come about during this period. Thanata yeah. Sasa, that's my favorite. That's my favorite. Florida. I used to live down there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But it's crazy. I mean, too, to think that, like we talked about before the podcast, the, the Battle of Dade. I drove past that place every single day for a year. 
and well, never, never you knew. and thousands of others. Yeah. You, you may see a historic marker sign there, and no one knows. The biggest thing, uh, people will see the sign on the interstate and immediately get there and say, who won, the Confederates or the Yankees? They immediately <laughs> think it's a Civil War battlefield. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, here's a here's a moment where we can talk about, nope, a little before then. Well, a lot of people don't realize that, that when you, you mentioned the Second Seminole War, until we, we've, we've had the the headaches out in the Middle East or you know, out in Iraq and Afghanistan. But up until about Vietnam, that, and it's not even one of the things that's remembered a lot of times as a war, right? But oh, yeah. that, that conflict in Florida for a long time was the single longest conflict and arguably the largest conflict in terms of percentage of military um, assets yeah, ever they, engaged. They spent fifty <laughs> something million dollars on that. Yeah, and that's eighteen hundreds. Yes, yes, yeah. And that and was, what'd you say that that I mean today that it's equates, like two billion dollars. Yeah, right for a couple of hundred guys. You know, there's because only a few thousand Seminoles, but when you look at any population, how many are actually at the point of the spear? It's a really yeah. low number. Very. Like we said, what it was five to eight hundred at the biggest battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're talking, you know, very small battles in the scheme of things, but it was the most costly war we had fought until Vietnam per capita. Yeah, and and, and unfortunately, a really grueling, intimate form of fighting. Yeah, like, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too into it, but these these guys, because the terrain and everything else, they weren't lobbing artillery at each other so much as they were grabbing each other's Stabbing blouses. And, and, yeah, yeah, using lances and. Brutal. So, so how much of that uh, equipment that was just abandoned is still in a swamp somewhere around here? There are metal detector guys who find stuff every month. Uh, the biggest thing is a lot of the battle sites are either protected or private land. Now, private land's good. You can get their permission pretty easily. But the fort sites are where things come up. There's over 100 forts built in Florida during this time, and many of those are still on private land or you know, pretty well-known public land. It's not really hard to take the modern maps, overlaid over period maps, and figure out where a lot of these are. There are some incredible collections from some guys that have been digging since the 1960s, 70s, 80s. And, you know, everything from you know lead musket balls like you'd expect, buckles, hardware, things like that, but... Um, what you don't find a lot of times is native stuff. It's all wood. That's either wood or... Stone. Yep. You'll, stone. you'll find a few rifle rifle balls. They use smaller caliber rifles most of the time. Uh, there were some bows and arrows, believe it or not, used in the war. Uh, so you'll find a few uh, projectile points here and there. But I was going to say, that's, that's one as is, is rich as the Native American history is in Florida... Uh, it seems like Florida is one of those states where you don't hear a lot of people talking about finding like a ton of arrowheads and stuff like that. You don't, and I think a lot of it is because um, a lot of the by the time we're talking like Seminoles, particularly they're they're using rifles and muskets. The earlier uh, Tamuk ones, the Calusa, folks like that, they're going to have a lot of projectile points but not compared to your other Eastern tribes. A lot of them are fishing along the coast and they're not using projectiles. Yeah. So you get, you lose a little bit of that as well. Um, 
but I think there, there for a long time was an apathy to looking for Native American artifacts. They were either looking for um, uh, ten to twelve thousand years, yeah, ago, paleo stuff, or more modern history. And so we lose a lot of that when it comes to relic hunting and things. And in a lot of ways, it's good too. That means they haven't been exploited and Absolutely. lose a lot of the historic value when people find yeah. those. But I'll say this: a lot of times in Central Florida, particularly. Uh, they'll crack open a hill or start plowing to build a new subdivision, and all of a sudden, boom. Here's a few projectile points here and there. Here's some pottery shards. I was going to say, and, I, I want to feel like a lot of it has to do with our terrain as well, because as you, further you go north, the harder the ground gets. Yes. And the stuff will stay towards the top easier. But here, yeah. I mean, gosh, it's it's just a bunch of broken down matter and sand and stuff gets buried easy, Either quick, sugar, deep, sand, and fast. One of the two, there ain't no in between. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, I can tell you, I, I know where some are. I'm not, I'm not going to name the WMA and I'm not going to, certainly not going to dial it right in. <laughs> but there, there are middens that I'm telling you, oh, we know man, dudes yeah. that walk right past them oh. or even right over them all the time. I, and they don't, it doesn't even ring their bell. And I, I did some research. Unless some homework. And to trying to like hunt, comparing middens to like good hunting areas a while back and most of the time where a midden is is going to be really good hunting there is a natural correlation to that yeah absolutely yeah but i was going to say that they're they're around that's all the that's that's a lot of pre-seminole stuff but it is it's around and we and until you develop an eye for it well it helps to develop an eye for it when you know it's there and you're stumbling through you know, a lot of the, my, my it, trail, it ain't on the trails, you know, it's like, Oh, my God. trail camera gem is very close to, uh, to a midden. It's in between two middens. Yeah. But once you know they're there and, and mm. there's ways to find, if you really want to know how to find them, you know, enough people have done work and, and then they, you know, especially yeah. stuff that pre-internet, they used to map it all out and you know, now they don't map it out so much for obvious oh, reasons. Yeah. yeah but you yeah. can find the maps yeah. on the internet. <sighs> Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, you can, <laughs> but yeah, if you do your homework, you can find them. Um, but you know, the one thing if you if you do, I'm just asking. You know, there's a reason they don't want you digging around them, I and thankfully, a lot of them they were poorly excavate, excavated at one point. But fortunately, the last 50, 60 years, a lot of the the better preserved middens that weren't mowed over for housing developments and roads and stuff have been excavated and there's a lot of cool things that have come out of them you know know, but that's all early history oh yeah (laughs) and unfortunately a lot of those folks all got as we said they all got run off you know pretty darn early in the process but i don't know you know that i could ramble a bunch of stuff there's a you know i don't know do you know anything about fort gadsden up on the apalachicola that's another one of the things where another one of those forts that the french came along were trying to kind of give it to Stick it to some people, yeah, and then there a lot of that's, Africans wound up there. And yeah, I know, I know a little bit about. It. It's kind of outside my area of expertise, but what I I do know is that's at that time again Spanish colonial. You got French, British. This is a whole really contested time. Very close by, you get uh, uh, Fort Mose, uh, which was one of the Sent first all of, black forts. So. Yep. Uh, really pivotal time in history when you look at it. I'm, what's really cool now is the state of Florida has finally realized the cultural significance of Fort Mose and um, have a new state park there where they're reconstructing the fort. 
That's south of St. Augustine, right? Or uh, it's south of Jacksonville, but is it between St. Yeah, Augustine and Jackson? Yeah. Okay. But you've got also kind of a cultural awareness of the Spanish colonial positions, too. Uh, outside of Tallahassee, you got Spanish mission there, port there. Of course, everybody knows St. Augustine, Castillo de San Marcos, but there really is kind of cool within the state system, at least the state park system, this new cultural awareness of earlier history. 1500s, 1600s that we didn't always have. Fort Caroline and Jacksonville, and uh, uh, both French and uh, French, English, and Spanish history is finally starting to be realized, uh, but still really untapped. Yeah, there we, was a... we we touched on a little earlier in the podcast, and you talk about like 1500s, like early Florida. Um, people don't realize how big Florida used to be. Oh, well, they said it went all the way to yeah, Louisiana. Sure. Yeah. Was it like 1810 or something like that? The biggest state in Florida was Baton Rouge. Yeah. The, you know, the capital. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mobile. All yeah. that fell under West Florida. And a lot of folks don't know. It, it's in the whole French history and things. People don't. A lot of folks aren't aware that Mardi Gras is not an invention of New Orleans. That is a mobile. <laughs> yep. And mm-hmm. if you. Go to Mobile. It's a, I'm shocked how many how few people actually like stop by Mobile. They drive right past it on I-10. But if you get off in Mobile, it's excellent. When you go down there, it's like, wow, this looks an awful lot like the French Quarter. Like, same people built yeah. it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, and speaking of French, I was going to mention that we know about the Spanish on the East Coast, and the Spanish had largely walked away, or I mean, they didn't really walk away. But there was there was just nothing going on in Florida, and then the French actually at one point established a community somewhere between New Smyrna and Jacksonville. And then those guys decided they were going to go up and make war on the Spaniards up around St. Augustine, got in a big boat wreck. And the Spanish were rather merciless. They just basically they did. They just cut off all their heads on the beach and walked away. <laughs> no more French. <laughs> End of French presence yeah. on the East Coast. Not my problem anymore. Yeah, yeah they yep. squashed that one pretty quick. Yep. Terrible. Anyway, I don't want to. History is not full of happy, rosy stories. Sometimes, no, <laughs> and then that's uh, that's why we have it to not repeat it as well. Indeed, I encourage all of you to pick up a history book. Absolutely, and man. an economics book. While we're at it, but let's start with history. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody hasn't read that lives in Florida and they haven't read read Land Remembered, they need to read that book. You are missing out if you haven't. It's yeah. a very, very great story. I actually picked up two teacher's editions from this gentleman right here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, to not just understand, but hopefully. He will be on the same par as every fourth grader in the state by the time he's done with those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Florida has just an amazing, rich history in general. It does. And, uh, even the area that we're in, I mean, you would never think it now, but still has an insanely rich history like the the paisley area and ocala and yeah all that and it kind of made me think back to when you were like they were given 160 acres away you think nowadays if somebody's like hey i'll give you 160 acres if you take care of it and you're armed i'd be like sold, sold. yeah yeah where am i going to again I, i'm armed for a lot less yeah <laughs> <laughs> though you know it might be a little more challenging if they said we're going to give you the 160 acres but you got to give up your car you got to dig your own well 
We're not going to spray for mosquitoes, and air conditioning is now a thing of your past. Good luck. <laughs> God. Well, see, I the, mean, the mosquito is already rough enough in Umatilla, so the, the difference I think is I can deal they with didn't that. know that they were giving up AC. <laughs> no, but they knew it didn't snow. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of people who came down here to be pineapple farmers and things like that, and that didn't work out so well. I was going to say, that was oh, a yeah. huge rough thing, too, is like you come up here, you, you give away 160 acres in Ocala or in the in the forest area and say, farm it. People are going to get there and go, how the hell do I farm this? There's a oh, reason why these over. forests are still forests Yeah, 170 years later. Because, well, yeah, there's no scrub. Nothing <laughs> yeah. will grow there. <laughs> there's no nutritional value in the soil. Scrub well, we, not to mention the prep of the land once you get it. Yeah. We had a yeah. forest service in here. Actually, quite a we need to call them back and get them back in. Yeah. But, yeah, they explained that... That's part of the reason why there was no agriculture. There's nothing to grow there. But then they explained that some of the, you know, they talked about fire in, in Florida and that the Indians, that the Seminoles and the people that were here before them used to use fire to clear vast areas and keep it beat back. Absolutely. Because they couldn't get around either. And then for a long time, we didn't burn anything yeah. and the place became jungle. So it's the reason why the state is very deeply involved in control burns now. Yeah. Because before it was lightning that did all the, everybody's work. But uh, today, well, hundreds of years, fire has been a big part of everything that we do. And it still is. Basically, Florida wrote the, as we understand it, Florida wrote the book on control. Absolutely. Everybody has learned learned from Florida. Totally. Totally. Yeah, man. I don't know. California does a pretty good job of burning. Just, they just, just stay on fire. Just in on general, own, yeah. yeah. They just stay on fire. They don't fire. need help. Yeah. A lot it of arguments happens. we made that because of poor forestry and not allowing them to do things is why yeah. things are so out of control now. Yeah. And things burn. And I, that was just kind of a joke. I wasn't actually saying That's all right. But, you know, because you know, it all kind of falls into our wheelhouse yeah. of conservation and everything else. When you go out there, you go through an area where you see a natural fire burn. And we saw a lot of it in New Mexico, things like that. And there's there's... You can tell a big fire went through there, but even the very next spring, there's a lot of green coming up through it um, because fire rolls through there and either started or natural fires on a fairly regular basis. But in places in California where they let things get so overgrown and then get so dry and the fires burn so hot that you go back the next year and look at that and there is no greenery because the, the, the fire got so hot it killed all of the bacterial and, and, and organic matter. It, it literally, what's the word, scorched? It's the uh, cauterized, I forget the word I'm looking for, sanitized. It cooked everything. It basically yeah. turned it to sand. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, without the organic and the bacterial stuff to start the process, now you've just got ash. Yeah. You do. And, and then, of course, it rains and there's no top cover and you get mudslides and. And it's really bad juju. So, you know, I don't, I'm not a forester, but I find it all pretty fascinating. And it's just not something that can just, you, you, as people, because we, we do want to move places, and I'm not telling anybody they can't move someplace, but it's interesting that what we're learning as people, that we, if we, if we can't allow the natural processes to take place, we have to duplicate them. Or we're really going to have big problems, and I don't know. I'll ramble about that from the hour if you let yeah. me. So I'll shut up now. <laughs> well, we are uh, we're winding down, so if anybody has any 
final thoughts. Let's hear them. Well, you have this fellow back in again. Yeah. I think we do too. Give him a couple sure. of weeks to recharge. Yeah. 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 I would be happy to come back. Absolutely. It is impossible to tell every story in 45 minutes or an hour. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely is. But Florida is so rich that you could almost pick any decade and something big and vital has happened in that that is connected to not just our state history but national and international history. And it is my, I guess, mission in life to let people know that, hey, we're here and we have a hell of a history. It's out there. And you don't have to be an academic to learn it. You know, there's there's some great stuff online. There's these places called libraries that still exist even, <laughs> you know, for you dinosaurs out there. But crack open a book. Hallelujah. Yeah. We should probably have you come back just to do a segment on uh, Chensgate Hill. Oh, man. You know, yeah. That history there is insane. Yeah, we started yeah. off talking about that's kind of your sweet spot and then talked about yeah. Seminoles. Yeah. I so. wonder if we can uh, take a trip and do it there. That'd be love road to. trip. Yeah. yeah. That'd be sweet. Yeah. Man, now we're talking. Do it yeah. in, uh, in uh, oh my goodness, I can't remember the gentleman's name, The uh, his office upstairs. Oh, Raymond Robbins. Yeah. Raymond Robbins' office. Do it in Colonel Robbins' office. Colonel. The Colonel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to say, and we we talked a little bit about uh, how burning in Florida has taken a massive, uh, just something huge to learn from, and it's been a natural thing for so long. I spent quite a, a bit of time today. I had the day off, spent tw- quite a bit of time turkey hunting or turkey scouting. And uh, one thing I always look for when I'm scouting for turkeys or fresh burns or fairly fresh burns because then like jim said that green stuff comes back up and it provides them with something to eat so if you're out turkey scouting this year this should come out i think the first weekend of season or just before season opens so oh south of 60 season yeah this it's i mean it's just before season though because we're not all the way in april already are we we no. open in March. South of sixty. March is next week. Here. We open like fifteenth of March. Oh really? Up here? Man, yeah. It's Holy coming really. up. For some reason I thought we opened oh no, Georgia's April one. Yeah. I'm writing that down. <laughs> it's something like that. Don't quote me on that exact date, but <laughs> I know south south of it's seventy. South of seventy, 70. is March fourth. Seventy, my mistake. And then uh up here I wanna say it's like the fifteenth or something like that. Something close. Not long after. So we're we're coming up on it. I mean, that permit that I scouted for today is like two weeks away. So, oh, man. got my little honey hole. I guess I gotta get out there and send a few clucks. Yeah, I put in thirty-one miles today, <laughs> trying to find some turkeys. And some of that was on foot. Most of it was on. I had started out doing quite a bit on foot, and then Jim was like, "Our guest is coming in at six o'clock," and I was like. Shit, looks like I'm scouting from the truck up. for the rest of the day, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I got like, uh, oh, shoot, I think I had like 30,000 acres of area that I was trying to scout, and I was like, I guess I'm going to have to hurry it on up because I'm losing an hour of time there. Did you need to get in the boat and do that. Were you calling? Were you, were you I clucking? was calling, and uh, man, just nothing was talking. But uh, I did, I found a good bit of tracks and some scratching, and uh 
personally put my eyes on one good long beard. You need to get in the boat and do that. So I can't. Not up there. Now, in our area, yeah, but where I was, there's no boat access. I was on a fire break, running a fire break in my truck, trying to get, because William had called me. He was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, why? He's like, nobody's heard from you in the group chat. And I was like, yeah, it's because I'm working off of SOS and one bar of LTE. (laughs) (laughs) I I can try to respond, but it's not going to go through. But uh, he finally reached me on my way out, and I was working down a fire break. And uh, he popped out in front of me and ran down the road and then flew away. Hmm. So I marked exactly where he popped out of the woods with Onyx. So. Good. Well, good luck, man. I hope you knock him down. Yeah. Ooh, that was All a right. tough one. Get your crawfish buy crawfish tickets. tickets. Yeah, hey, yeah. buy your crawfish tickets for sure. And uh, if you want to come on the Swanee and you're not signed up for it, pay for it because we're there. All right, adios.